is dying. Jesus dies, or he's given up his spirit, as Matthew says. Jesus has just died. And the very next thing in the scripture says this, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus dies, and in the moment that he dies, the curtain in the temple is torn. Now, just so you know, I'm going to use curtain and veil interchangeably. It's the same thing, okay? Uh, so I'm going, to, I'm going to change that up just to try to keep you on your toes, I guess. I'm not sure why we're doing that, but... Um, The curtain and the veil are the same thing, and the curtain is in the temple. So, why do both Matthew and Mark immediately go from Jesus Christ on the cross and dying to referring to the temple? Because we haven't heard anything about the temple as as we read the crucifixion story up until this point. So then we have to ask the question, why is this significant? Why is it important that the veil has been torn? And to really answer that question, we have to know what the veil was, and we have to know a little bit of history about the veil as well. So, why is it significant? First, we have to know what it is. The veil was essentially a divider or a doorway, okay? Uh, That's really what it was. Um, The tabernacle, Solomon's temple, the post-exilic temple, and Herod's temple all had the veil or curtain, and it served as a divider. So if we bounce back to Exodus chapter 26, verse 33, God is giving Moses instructions for how to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent where the Jews uh, worshipped him. It It was a mobile temple, if you will. Okay, verse 33. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate you for you, the holy place, from the most holy. Tabernacle, again, is where God instructed Moses and the Israelites to worship. It was, again, a mobile temple. And so we have a picture of it. There you go. That's the tabernacle. That's where the the Israelites would go into worship. And what do you see right there in the middle? You see a veil, right? You see a veil, right? The veil separates the rest, in this case, the tabernacle, from the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is the room where the Ark of the Covenant was stored. And that represented God's presence. Okay, so uh, God was with his people, the Israelites, and uh, symbolically he was in the temple, but specifically in the Ark of the Covenant. And so wherever the Ark of the Covenant was, that represented God's presence. And so because God was in the Ark of the Covenant, whatever room the Ark of the Covenant sat in became a holy place. And it had to be blocked off. So they put a veil in. God instructed Moses to put a veil in to divide the Holy of Holies from the holy place. Okay? Holy of Holies and holy place. Two different places. But that's what the veil was in the tabernacle. Jump forward a couple of hundred years. King David is the king. He's kind of the the most successful king, mighty king. He brought Israel together and um, things are going well for David. He's towards the end of his life. And he asks God in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 17, he asks God if he can build a temple. And God says, no, you can't build a temple. But he did tell David he could could gather the materials so that his son Solomon 
could build the temple. We see that in 1 Chronicles chapter 22. And so here's a picture of Solomon's temple. There we go. That's the inside of the temple. And what do you see? You see a veil. Right? There's a veil in the tabernacle. There's a veil in Solomon's temple. Now, obviously, this temple is a lot more fancy, a lot better looking, and a lot more elaborate than the tabernacle was. It's, it's gold all over the place. It's just a, one of the most beautiful buildings ever built. And still, there's a veil that represents the same thing. The Ark of the Covenant is sitting there in the Holy of Holies next to the two cherubim. Right? And so that represents God's presence, and therefore, man cannot enter that room. So there's a veil. This temple, uh, Solomon's temple, sat, or stood, I guess, for about 420 years. And then it was destroyed and ransacked by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. You can read about that in 2 Kings 25. But then, so uh, the Babylonians come in, and we have what's called the exile. They're, they spend 70 years, the Jews spend 70 years in exile in Babylon. That's where you get the story of uh, uh, Daniel, for example. But after 70 years, King Darius allowed the temple to be rebuilt. You can read about that in the book of Ezra. But construction was slow. As the people who are returning back to uh, Jerusalem concentrated on the wall around the city and also their own homes, their own livelihoods, those kinds of things. And so they slowly rebuilt the temple, but they, it wasn't ever a, a great one. And so um, that's called the post-exilic temple. And so that one stood uh, really over, there's another 400 years or so. You have a, a series of different rulers come in and take over the city of Jerusalem. So uh, the city fell uh, under Babylon, and really from that point forward, they, really, they were never their own autonomous nation again. And so we have different remnants of the Greek empire coming in and taking over and different things happening. And so um, over the next 400 years, all these different rulers would come in and do different things to the temple. And the worst of them all was a man, it was a king named Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and he was from uh, the Seleucids, which was, uh, that, that was kind of one of the generals when Alexander the Great's empire broke up. Uh, this, this was a remnant from that. But anyway, Antiochus was an evil, evil, evil man. He, he was a, a monster, is what he was, and he persecuted the Jews. He absolutely hated them. He um, outlawed any type of worship to God. Uh, so the Jews were not allowed to worship in any way. And probably the most horrific was that he went in and he rededicated the temple to Zeus. And he did that by slaughtering a pig on the altar. He's, again, evil. Jump to the year 39 B.C., and we come to a man that you're familiar with. His name is Herod the Great. This is the same man that tried to kill Jesus uh, at his birth. We hear about him in the, the Nativity story. Herod the Great was not a good man either. He was kind of, kind of Jewish, but he had his own interests and particularly his own power and wealth and these kinds of things. So he was focused on that, and 
He wins a war. He takes control of the temple. But as he does it, he slaughters many of the priests and defenders of the temple, many of the people who really cared about faithful worship of God. Herod killed them. But since he had a little bit of Jewish heritage in him, he kept the Roman soldiers from going into the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies behind that veil. Herod proposed to renovate the temple in the year 20 and 1920 B.C., and he said that the post-exilic temple was uh, shorter than Solomon's original, and so the Jews weren't real happy about it, but he uh, tore it down, and he rebuilt it, and uh, it really, it, the main sanctuary only took a year to build, and then the rest was, I think, eight years, and finishing touches uh, went on until the year 63 B.C., and now here's going to be a comparison of the two temples. Yeah, see, so Herod made this big, huge um, monster of a temple, and then that's Solomon's temple on the left. So Herod's temple is the one that we're talking about. Herod's temple is the one that Jesus would have walked into, the one that Jesus would have known, the one that Jesus cleared, by the way. Did you notice in that last picture, by the way? I think the next picture. Go ahead. There you go. What do we see at the center? We see, just like all the other ones, the veil. The veil is there. The temple changed a few times over the course of history, but one of the things that remained in all of them was the veil, the separation between God and man. The veil was placed at the entrance to the most holy place or the holy of holies. Remember the tabernacle and all of the and all of the temples represented God's presence with his chosen people. The veil represented the separation between God and man. Throughout Jewish history, it represented the separation between God and man. God is perfectly holy, and therefore he had to be separated between mankind because mankind is not perfectly holy because mankind is sinful. According to a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, the veil was a beautiful four-inch thick curtain. That's, that's how he describes it. Walking through the curtain would lead you into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was held, at least until it was lost, and where God's presence symbolically was. Only one man, the high priest, could enter into the Holy of Holies. And he could only do this once a year. And only really for, for a couple of moments. He would take the blood from a lamb and he'd sprinkle it out in the presence of God. And this symbolized the covering of people's sins. If anyone else tried to walk through that veil into the Holy of Holies, they were immediately struck dead by God. And so what we have is we have the veil representing throughout all of Jewish history the separation between God and man. In fact, if you attempted to enter into, even symbolically, enter into God's presence, you'd be killed. So now we know what the veil is, but there's, there's another thing we have to understand. Jesus was crucified on Passover weekend. 
Passover weekend, during that, that one um, celebration, the city of Jerusalem would grow by about 10 times. Okay, some people, uh, some people estimate that the city was about 100,000 people, but over Passover, it would grow to a million people in this city. All right? So, they came to worship. So what does that mean for us? It means that the temple would have been absolutely full. The temple was full of people. When Jesus was on the cross, the temple was overflowing with people. And that veil gets torn. That veil gets destroyed. The temple would have been absolutely full with pilgrims. They would travel from all over the world. And all of a sudden, they're in the temple. They're worshiping. Some of them, it would have been their first time ever that they were there. And as they were worshiping, this big, beautiful, centuries-old, four-inch-thick curtain splits from top to bottom. Destroying the curtain, by the way. But in doing so, it exposed the average worshiper to the Holy of Holies. That would have been terrifying. If you were an average Jew who was in the temple on that day, that would have been terrifying. The temple, the, the, the veil is torn in the temple, and then all of a sudden you get the earthquake as well. Would have been horrifying. Leviticus chapter 16 tells us this. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Had Aaron, who was the, who was the first high priest, entered into the holy of holies in an inappropriate way, even he would have died. And now here are... Here are probably thousands of people exposed to the Holy of Holies at the very moment that Jesus dies. The veil was in place since the tabernacle 15 years before Jesus' crucifixion. For that entire time, there was no access for the average person. There's no access for anybody except for the high priest. No other person except for the high priest had ever seen the Holy of Holies until that day. On the day Jesus dies or, or gives up his spirit, it tears from top to bottom. Everyone there that day would have known, if I walk through the curtain, I'm dead. I'm just Jews understood that. That's how it works. That's, that's what happened. If, if I were to cross through or if I were to walk into this room, then I'm not going to survive. But it tore on its own and exposed presence of God, symbolically the presence of God. And this happens at the same exact time that the man who claimed to be Messiah was dying. Even from the skeptic's point of view, the curtain was destroyed on the same day the man who claimed to be one with God was killed. You, know, you have to make that connection. There's no denying it doesn't matter whether, whether you accepted Christ or, or thought that he was a blasphemer in that day. But there's no denying that something incredibly powerful happened at the temple that day. The veil was torn from top to bottom and the earth shook. 
That's extreme. That's powerful. Something happened. The tearing of the veil could not have been kept a secret. There's, there's no way people would have saw that and just kind of nonchalantly walked out. It would have been terrifying. It would have been exciting. I mean, everyone would have been talking about this. On top of the crucifixion of the man who claimed to be one with God, the one who was the Messiah, who claimed to be the Messiah, those two things happened at the same time. It would not have been lost on anybody in Jerusalem on that weekend. So we know what the veil was now. We have a little bit of history of it. and We know kind of what it was meant to do, divide God from man. But the next question is, why was it torn? We're reading about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and we see all the events surrounding the crucifixion, and then right as Jesus dies, it goes to the temple and talks about the veil. Why is it significant? Why do we need to know that? What the tearing of the veil is, is God giving us access to himself. When Jesus Christ died, we gained access to God the Father, something that nobody has, had had up to this point in all of history. Once sin entered the world, there was no access to God in the way that we have until Jesus Christ died. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 says this, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Because of who Jesus is and what he did for us, you and I have access to God. Through Jesus Christ, we have access to God. And it's not because of what we've done, but because of what he did. Okay, and so allow me to illustrate this. I, there's this famous picture of uh, John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy. He's working in the Oval Office. He's, he's doing presidential things. And there's his son. I don't know if you can see him. His son's playing underneath by his feet. And so you can see uh, little John Kennedy Jr. playing underneath the Oval Office while his dad is being um, super important, right? And so uh, his son has an access to the president. This little boy has access to the president that nobody else in the world has. And so we can translate this to today. Our president does not have children this young, but he does have grandkids. And so whether you like President Trump or not, he has grandkids who have access to him. And so we've got another picture of this little guy um, smearing his face on the, the window in the Oval Office. Right? And uh, this is President Trump's grandson, uh, Joseph. I can't, I, I don't know which one of the, I don't follow him that close, but um, I'm not sure who his parents are. This is President Trump's grandson. And he's in the Oval Office, and he's just being a kid, smearing his face on the window, something all kids everywhere get in trouble for, right? This kid just happens to do it in the Oval Office. This kid, um, he has access to the president. Not because this child is anything spectacular, no offense to him. Right? This, this boy is just a boy, he's a kid. But his grandfather is the most powerful man in the world. And so he has access to that. There are people alive today that have basically sold their entire lives to get to the Oval Office just to stand in there, just to be remotely close to the President of the United States. And this little boy was just born. 
And he gets to hold the president's hand. He gets to smear his face all over the president's window. John Kennedy Jr. got to play in the bottom of the, of the, the desk while his dad worked. That's an access that no one else has. If you or I tried to sneak into the White House and smear our faces on the window, there'd be some pretty bad things happen to us, wouldn't it? We probably wouldn't survive. But when this guy does it, the president laughs, probably. They enjoy it. You and I don't have that kind of access. We don't have the access to the White House or to the president that, that this boy does. Through Jesus, just like Hebrews 10 told us, through Jesus, we have access to God. Like John Kennedy Jr. playing at his dad's feet or President Trump's kids playing in the Oval Office. We have access in a unique way that people before Jesus did not have. Jesus allowed that. Jesus opened that door for us. Access to God is not about politics or race or income or morality. It's not about any of that stuff. It's not about who you've married. It's not about anything. In fact, access to God is not about you at all. It, it really is not. It's not about who you are or what you've done. Access to God is all about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for you. And like, the, like President Trump's grandson, you're just here. You're just there. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2.13 tells us this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The veil represents man's separation from, from God. It had been destroyed. The veil was destroyed. And so man's separation from God had also been destroyed. This is giving us, giving the world access to God the Father. This is God telling us that we now have access to him because of what Jesus did when he laid his life down, when he completed that work, we now have access to God the Father. You and I don't need a priest to pray for us. We can pray to God on our own. You don't have to come to me to pray for you. Although obviously we're willing to do that. But you can pray on your own. You have your own access to him. And all of this happened at the moment that Jesus gave up his spirit. The veil tore, demonstrating that we now have access to God the Father. It tears at the exact moment that Jesus dies. It's not a coincidence. This is God working. And then as he shakes the earth, he's showing his presence. Okay? So we know what the veil is, right? We know why it was torn. But what does it mean for us? What does a torn veil mean for us? First, I would say just grace. You and I receive grace in a way that, that it was completely foreign to people before Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we get grace. Romans chapter 5, verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
we get grace. Grace, in, in my own words, is, is getting something that we don't deserve. Salvation, access to God. Grace is different from mercy, which is not getting something that we do deserve. Condemnation, right? Separation from God. Through Jesus, we get grace. And not just any grace, we get extreme grace. We have an extreme God. And we get His extreme grace. We get a radical grace that only the God of heaven can give. That's what we have access to. That's, that's one of the benefits. That's, that's what it means for you and me. Grace means, practically speaking, that God doesn't look at you and say, get your life in order and then we can talk about forgiveness. You, you figure yourself out, you get yourself right, and then I'll forgive you. Grace says, bring me your messed up past. Bring me your messed up past and let me forgive and then we'll talk about rebuilding your life. Grace changes everything. And it's only through Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ as, as Lord and Savior, can our lives be reassembled. It's only through faith that we get that grace, that we receive that forgiveness. We can't get our lives straight and then come to Jesus. It's impossible. Don't believe that. It's, a, it's actually, it's a lie. You don't have to get your life right before you can come to Christ. You have to come to Christ first and then you can get your life right. I invite people here all the time and so often I hear, if, if I went to your church, lightning would strike. And it, that's a fine joke to get out of coming to church with a pastor. I, I understand that joke. It's good. But it's based on a lie. I mean, it's not true. Right? It's just a way for them saying, no, I'm, Pastor, I'm not coming to your church. But it's based on a lie. There's no one so bad and so evil that, that God does not want them near him. In fact, that's exactly why Jesus died was for people who are evil and broken and sinful. What else do we get? We get grace. But we also get a home. We do. We don't just receive grace. Well, I guess a part of that grace is we receive a home. John chapter 14, verse 3 says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may, also, you may be also. The torn veil means that we have access to the place that Jesus has prepared for us. Through a faith in him, we have access to where he is now. This is incredible. Where he is now, in, in heaven, in, at the, the, the side of God, at the right hand of God, is where Jesus is. And he's bringing us with him. This means that we don't have to fear death. We have a hope. We have a future. We can get excited about what lies ahead. Death is not the end for us. Death is the beginning of, of living for all of eternity in the presence of God. Something that would be greater than you or I could ever imagine. That's one of the things that we get. 
As the veil is torn, that's what God is declaring. You don't have to be separated from me anymore. Jesus dealt with that. But all of this is only available through a faith in Jesus Christ. A faith in Jesus Christ is how you get access, is how your veil is torn. Without a faith in Jesus Christ, there is still a separation between you and God. But that separation has already been overcome by Christ. You simply have to trust him as God, as the one who died for your sins, the sins that you committed, the sins that are in your life. Jesus has already dealt with them because he already loves you for who you are right now today. Not for who you can become one day, not for who he hopes you'll be 10 years from now, but he loves you enough right now today where you're sitting to die for you, to die for all the horrible, evil sins that you've involved yourself in. And he brings along with it grace and forgiveness and an eternal home. But it didn't happen for free. This, Jesus did not purchase our salvation free of charge. In fact, he endured suffering and torture and death. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And elders, you guys can move forward as we prepare to go into uh, the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 23, is going to say this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.